The host of this show, Max Naist, lived in addiction for years and made lots of destructive choices, which resulted in losing friends, family, and his career. After being in jail for the fourth time, he knew he needed to make some big changes. Now, he shares the steps he took, which led to recovery and got his life back. Welcome to Fearless Happiness. 19.7 million American adults have battled a substance use disorder. 38% of adults have battled an illicit drug use disorder. But no matter what the struggle, no matter the challenge, you can overcome anything and become successful. Max and his guests share experience, strength, hope, and faith. If it's PTSD or military-related, trauma, physical, verbal, sexual addiction, alcoholism, you can accomplish your dreams. And with this show, we help others be fearless in their pursuit of happiness. This is Fearless Happiness, and this is Max Naist. All right. I like to start off like this, everybody, right? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this world. It's Max from the Fearless Happiness Podcast, and I have such a wonderful guest today joining me, Sandy Phillips Kirkham. What I like to do, Sandy, is have you introduce yourself to my audience, let them know who you are, what it is you do, and then we're going to get rocking and rolling, as I like to say. Okay. I am Sandy Phillips Kirkham. I am an advocate for victims of clergy sexual abuse. I was sexually abused uh, at age 16 by my youth pastor, who was 30 years old and married and with two children at the time. Um, I'm married with two kids, uh, and I have two perfect granddaughters and one fairly well-behaved dog, I would say, a little <laughs> dachshund who has a mind of her own. Um, but my life took a, a, a pretty good turn when I turned 16 when the abuse began. Um, it lasted for five years. And I spent 27 years after the abuse ended keeping that secret. Uh, my husband didn't know. My family didn't know. And it was a burden that was very difficult to carry for 27 years. And because I was 16 when the abuse started, I thought that I was having an affair with a married man. I was old enough you know, to be in between that child age and a teenage year. And he portrayed that our relationship was that way, that we were married in God's eyes, that this was God's will. Um, I was helping him in his ministry. And so all of that, in my mind, I never saw it as abuse. So for me, for 27 years, I was hiding a secret that I had had an affair with a married man who was my pastor. Um, it's important to note that this was not his first incident. Um, shortly after arriving at our church, he was accused by a young woman in his first church of having um, inappropriate behavior with her. When my elders learned this, they decided to forgive him. He promised it would never happen again. And they let him continue as our youth pastor without giving any information to the congregation. And within six months of that accusation, he was kissing me in my hallway after a youth group meeting, after everyone had gone home. So that's how it kind of started. And I will tell you that first kiss was not only traumatic, but it also sent me into a tailspin of what do I do with it? I, I couldn't believe that my pastor was doing something that he shouldn't be doing. And I looked up to him. I trusted him. And so I then just assumed that this was something I was misunderstanding. It was kind of a quick, innocent kiss. He was telling me how great I was and how much he appreciated the work I was doing in the church. I was very, very active in this church. Um, it's no exaggeration to say that if the doors of the church were open, 
I was there. I sang in the choir. I taught Sunday school. I went to church camp. It was a place that I absolutely loved. His abuse changed all of that for me. Um, and so, as I said, the abuse went on for five years. Initially, it, it appeared to be that this was some kind of a loving relationship and that he cared about me. But soon after he had sex with me, which was about a year after that first kiss, because there was a grooming process right. for that first year. Um, and, and, and a lot of times, you know, I would be with him and he, he would be fine. He wouldn't kiss me. He wouldn't hug me. He wouldn't do anything. So I was always in this kind of confusion of state of, is he doing something he shouldn't be doing or is he not? And it doesn't seem wrong. So I just justified it, that it was okay. But once he had sex with me, I knew that was wrong. But at that point, you know, he told me I couldn't tell anyone that no one was going to believe me. And honestly, I didn't want anyone to know that about me. I, I remember thinking, how have I ended up in my pastor's bed having sex? I, I couldn't even, I couldn't, understand it and so for me it was a matter of almost blocking it out and letting it happen and that's what i did um but shortly after the intercourse happened um he became violent he started controlling me he became very um angry at times I was always on edge around him and I didn't feel like I could tell anyone there wasn't anyone I felt like I could tell and so I just accepted the relationship that this was what was going to happen. Um, and it was an extremely difficult, difficult time for me. And I knew um, that it would never end until he said it was over. I never felt like I had any power to get out of the relationship. At one point, when I would try to get out of the relationship, he said to me, well, you know, you're no longer a virgin. You're not worthy of being loved by anyone else. And no one else can love you like I can. Well, you know, that's the gaslighting. That's telling me over and over that I'm not worthy of love by any, to be loved by anyone else. And I began to believe that. I, I accepted that, that this was my life. And so I didn't know what else to do, but just to let the abuse continue. And again, I'm looking at it as an affair. So I'm trying to please him. I'm trying to make it work in some way because I think this is God's will because he's told me that. Um, but he was eventually caught and he was called in by the elders and i don't know what narrative he gave them i was never called in i was never asked any questions i was just told where to sit in church and how to behave because the whole goal was going to be to move him to the next church and without anyone finding out now a few people did begin to find out about it um but nonetheless he was given a going away party and moved to the next church I was then called in by the elders, and I was told that because of my behavior, I was to leave the church. And wait, wait, excuse I me, could, excuse me. Yeah, I know it's a wild uh, movement, isn't it? It totally, totally. Say, oh my God! So you know, being a father uh, and having daughters, I don't care who you are. If, like you got grew, yeah. like I, you know, and, and because of stuff that has happened, right? We see it in the news and we see it in movies, that grooming process, right? They totally break you down to yes. make it seem like it's all you, that you caused mm -hmm. this, right? So you're 16, 17, even when it ends, right? I mean, the guy has a record yes. and they give him a going away, let alone, you know, give him a going away party to go on to the next church, but to blame basically what they said, this is your fault too. Absolutely. 
Like uh, how not just is- two. I think they blame me totally that I somehow seduced him or that, you know, oh he had a gosh. weakness and I preyed upon that weakness. I, I mean, I will tell you, being told that I wasn't fit to worship in that church anymore devastated me. I love that church. It was, it meant everything to me. And that message to me was we can forgive him and he's not to blame. You are. And I, I, I didn't know how, I was just devastated. And I've said to people many times that the response of that church had a greater impact on my life moving forward than the actual abuse did. I mean, I can remember thinking years later, if my friends ever find out that I was horrible enough and bad enough to be kicked out of a church, what would they think right. of me? So that only added to the guilt and shame because I, as victims do, most often they blame themselves you know why didn't i stop it why didn't i say no why didn't i do this or that and so to have that blame self-blame going on to begin with and then the church adds on to that by saying you are to blame and these are authoritative men in the church who i've trusted and believe that they were my guides and spiritually now they're telling me no you're not fit to be here and you need to leave it, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. Um, yeah, that's that's got to absolutely be crushing and demoralizing, right? When you know, see, and that's that's where, I, you know, I hate to say it, but sometimes that's why I have a hard time going to church, right? I believe in God. I believe he takes care of me. But because of these stories like yourself that, you know, you, you finally go, that's enough is enough. He gets caught and then you're going to blame me. Like... Tell tell the audience, like, because I want them to understand that has to be the most. I can't, you know, I'm feeling it for you. And I know that happened all these years ago, but it's just that would be like. um, I always liken it to like me abusing my child or something and then blaming it. You made me do that. Like how like you can't do that. Like you and I know, I mean, we're how. So how did. okay? so you're asked to leave the church, right, because of your behavior. This guy mm-hmm. abuses you and somehow mm-hmm. they put it on you. So back, go back a little bit and, and, and tell the audience like how you started to overcome that because you just, in the beginning, you told 27 years of carrying that secret is that's got to be heavy on the heart. You know what I mean? So how did you start to finally go? That isn't my fault. I don't care what any of these people tell me. Well, you know, for 27 years, I did believe it was my fault. So I did carry not only the secret of what was done to me because I didn't understand what was done to me, but, you know, my self-esteem was very low in the sense that how I viewed myself and how I worried other people would view me if they knew this secret about me. But what happened was, um, and I talk about this in the very first chapter of my book, there was a trigger that sent me over the edge. I had triggers throughout like 27 years there would be times when my anxiety level would hit to a point that i almost couldn't control it but i had to because i was around people that knew me and i couldn't explain to them why i was having a trigger over a song i heard and so i had been able to manage those triggers throughout the years but this particular one um i was driving to my daughter's golf tournament it was out of town and i passed a sign and it was the exit sign for the city to where he had moved after our church moved him to that church and it was the fact that i felt like i was in his presence all over again and i just had a really a minor mental breakdown i pulled to the side of the road and just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and i didn't exactly know what that was 
doing to me or why I was having those feelings. But I knew it was something I was going to have to deal with. And that began the journey of me telling my truth and begin that journey of healing. Because as long as I was holding that secret in, he was always a part of my life. He was always, the abuse didn't end at that five-year period. It continued for 27 years because every time I had a trigger, every time some thought of him came in my mind, or every time I feared someone was going to find out about my secret, he was there with me. That was where he was with me. And keeping a secret from my husband was difficult. You know, I didn't want to do that either. But so that created a division that he wasn't aware of, but I knew it was there. And so once I was able to finally say, okay, I don't know what's happening to me right now, but I've got to do something. And I can't push this back down again. And so what I decided was for the first time I was going to have to find someone to tell. And I found a friend that I trusted. And I I probably took me 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and sobbing in front of her before I could finally get the words out. I was sexually abused by my youth pastor. And that that ability to give a voice to my pain, to my trauma, to my truth was huge. It was huge. And it would probably be another two years before I was really able to sort and keep things in a perspective, a way of what I was dealing with. So the healing is a process. It's not an end. There's never, in my mind, there's never an end to traumatic healing. It's always a part of you. you. You, For me, it was learning to let go of that trauma and figure out how do I deal with the triggers? What do I need to do to, to move past this? Because his abuse is always a part of me. It's it's what happened to me. It what was done to me. But it doesn't have to define me. And so that's right. that was where I decided I'm going to do something that's not going to allow me to be trapped by this man any longer. Right. Um, one of the things that I did, um, and it, it was a necessity for me, I don't know that it's true for all victims, but I wanted to confront him. And I had no idea where he was. Been 20 30 years since I'd seen him, but I hired a private investigator and I found him ministering in a church in Alabama and I confronted him. I took my husband, I took a counselor, and I took a very good friend of mine who was at the church at the time. Now, one of the things that that I think gave me a little more courage to confront him was the fact that he couldn't deny that it happened. You know, it wasn't as if he could look at me and say, she's confused, I never did that because it was so public. So that gave me a little bit more courage to go forward with confronting him. However, I will tell you it was, um, I was scared to death. And not because I was afraid of what he might say or do in the sense of, I kind of expected him to say he was sorry and that he didn't mean to hurt me, which is what he did. I was so afraid of walking into that room and being 16 all over again. And that whatever he would say or do to me, I would respond that as I did when I was 16. And that he he was so manipulative and so charismatic that I thought he's going to work this room just like he always has. Right. And that didn't happen. I I stood up to him. I was I said everything I wanted to say to him. I had actually uh, made a list of about 20 things that I wanted him to read to me 
So for instance, you know, I, I, it says, you know, I was wrong when I kissed you that night. I was wrong when I hit you. I was wrong when I took your spiritual life and twisted it. I, I had about 20 things on that list that I made him read. He got to the end of it and he said, well, I don't remember all of this, but if you say it happened, then it happened. To which my husband, I thought was going to just fly across the room and choke him and said, let me tell you something, pal. I've known this woman for 30 years. And if she says it happened, it happened. And that was, you know, that that bolstered me even more because I knew he was on my side, which I knew he would be. But right. hearing him say those words to him was very empowering for me. So that's right. sort of, you know, what I did for my healing. Um, the other thing was I educated myself on predatory behavior, on clergy abuse. I learned the terms grooming, manipulation, gaslighting, love bombing, because once I understood all those terms, I could then look back and see that is exactly what he did to me, exactly right. what he did to me. Probably knew exactly when certain things were happening. Oh, that's when he was this, or that's when he was doing yeah. that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I I can clearly look back. And I, and I give some of those examples in the book because I want the reader to understand it's not this man that just pushed me up against the wall and said he was going to have sex with me. You know, he groomed me to a place where, and that's what they do. They, they, they do get you to a point where they start to use desensitize desensitize behavior that you wouldn't accept in someone else because right. you trust them they've told you how wonderful you are and in most cases as as in mine they fill a need and a void in your life and my parents were divorced so i didn't see my father much during my teenage years he was a father figure to me and he tapped into that and then he slowly continually crossed boundaries enough that i would continually accepted it and again this man was beloved by the church they loved him he was treated like a rock star so in my mind you know whatever he's doing has to be okay um even though once the sex started i i knew that was wrong i i couldn't justify that any longer and i i always felt guilty about that but i couldn't live with it without just saying okay i can't do anything about this so it's what it is it's right. what it is I mean, and that that takes a lot of courage because you hear about like victims, like in in your case, sexual abuse, right, and stuff. Where you know it's already bad enough; they they're blaming themselves, right? So that took right. a lot of courage on your end, right? And I I love that your husband had your back and and your friend. And the, I mean, that's the way yeah. to do it, right? Right. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. I never confront your abuser alone. Never. Right. Because that could go south quickly. Um, yes. But, you know, I, I've heard of that, like where I've seen these shows where like uh, a mother will confront the, the killer of her child. Right. And then, mm -hmm. you know, lay into them and then go, OK, I forgive you. And that forgiveness was more for them than it was, the you know, the right. other person. Right? right. Because it actually sets you free. Right. So that had to yes. have set you free finally of all that guilt and that shame that wasn't even your fault as we know but when i'm hearing this story right it's like when i got sober right and i'm going through my step work it remind me of mm -hmm. that four step where i had to get rid of all those secrets because my sponsor mm -hmm. said we're as sick as our secrets you keep holding that on a drink is going to happen again eventually because absolutely you know yep. that that guilt and shame will pop up and i tell everybody i work with whether it's my clients or anybody in the the recovery if you don't get rid of those secrets, you're bound to drink or do a drug again because that guilt and shame is the most powerful feeling or emotion 
that one can feel and it's so horrible when you're going through it yes right you feel because like it, you it, have it destroys your self-worth you don't absolutely. feel worthy yeah so when you you're carrying this guilt and shame it's repeating in your head and in your mind you're not worthy you're not good enough look what you did you're a bad person and that just rots you from the inside out you cannot and i, I tell victims as you just said you've got to tell someone don't yes. let this stay within you and and i and that comes from someone who kept a secret for 27 years believe me i was going to my grave with this i was right. never going to tell anyone right and so i'm thankful that, that that trigger forced me to to look at my past and to look at the abuse the other thing was difficult for me and this is called stockholm syndrome and you've probably heard of it but mm victims often will have sympathy for their abusers you know i didn't want to hurt him i didn't want to tell on him and get him in trouble and even years later i had to separate my mind to remind myself this was not someone that ever cared about you and that was difficult for me to accept because deep down no one wants to believe that they were targeted and used solely for the purpose of a sexual act right i wanted to believe on some level that he did care about me and that took me a while to continue to remind myself no he did not care about you this was purely an act of evil that was put upon you and so um when i confronted him that was my moment to look at him in the eye and see evil and just have no sympathy for him at all um he didn't deserve my sympathy and at one point he does say to me which was totally inappropriate it's not for my sake but for your sake you should forgive me totally inappropriate for the for the perpetrator to say you need to forgive me i looked at him and i said i i will try to forgive you because i wasn't at a point that i could right and and let me just say what i you know forgiveness as you kind of alluded to is it's letting go of that person so that they're no longer controlling your life it doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for their behavior it doesn't mean you just automatically forget about it and forgive and forget that's not a possibility right it's 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 not does not mean that i remain silent um he was he actually called me um a few months after and was upset when he found out I was continually talking about this and that I was he called it emotionally blackmailing him which I think is rich uh I'm emotionally blackmailing him really right, right. um I mean he had the nerve to call me and say well you said you forgave me so why do you, why do you keep talking about it forgiveness does not mean you silence me right it, it doesn't mean forgetting a, no and it just means I'm going to let go and I'm no longer going to allow you to be a part of my life and sure I have moments of anger but I have to tell you most of the time it's sadness I am sad for what he took from me yeah. I am sad that there are people in this world who do such things to innocent individuals I I find it to be a sadness that overwhelms me sometimes that how could he have done this to me I was an innocent 16 year old girl I had never even kissed anybody before you know, I was attractive, I think, at the time. And so I think there was this feeling that I was a sexy little thing running around. I, I was so naive. And so I think that was another reason when he took put me on the floor that first night and had sex with me. It was so traumatic to me that I, I tried to block it out and just pretend that it wasn't happening, um, which a lot of victims do. That's not unusual. Right. 
and see here's the thing i mean any of that i don't care where it comes from is wrong right it's i have two daughters of my own right and i have grandchildren and now the grandbabies, the girls outnumber the guys right and i and i have these moments like when i have this talk like i'll have probably after when i'm you know wrapping it up i i look at my grandkids when you see this stuff in the news right whether it's my grandsons mm -hmm. or granddaughters or even my right. adult children right and i look at them and i'm like like you know what my old behavior would come back that quick if somebody ever hurt a child you know especially yes. my right and right I, i've worked very hard not to be that person right i try to be helpful not harmful to people but i think and i look at these babies right and i just go like how can people do this whether it's a child or sit, you know, a teenager or or any or even an adult or an adult, right? With this trafficking, we hear, yeah, absolutely, right? Like, how can people do that and just do that to another human? Like they're not even there. Like they're just a, you know what I mean? A piece of property, something to be used. Yeah, right. I mean, and you know, uh, women, adult women can be vulnerable. And these pastors, priests, or rabbis, when you're in that position of a religious authority and you're given this automatic trust just because of who you are then to no. turn around and take advantage of someone who is hurting who is in a vulnerable position in their life and to use that against them there, there can be no greater evil i mean that Absolutely. is they're using the church they're using the name of god to perpetrate these evils on these individuals as whether they're adults or children um I mean, I work with a lot of adult women who have, are were in counseling situations. Their marriages were falling apart, and they look to this individual to help them. And I have spoken to Cincinnati Christian University to the pastors' classes, and one of the things I tell them is, "Look, I don't care if a woman walks into your office and completely throws herself at you. You, as a professional, need to see that as a cry for help and not an invitation right. to go to bed." Right. It's your job to understand and see that need, not to fulfill your own needs, but to help that individual. She's right. not there to have you compound her problems by having sex with her. Right. And I think we need to recognize, and I think most people do, that pastors, rabbis, and priests are in a very powerful position. They, they have a lot of influence over those that they serve. And when they misuse that power, they need to be removed. They've Absolutely. proven they're no longer fit for worship. I will tell you, my my abuser is still in the ministry. That's I think he's semi-retired now. That's but crazy. Even after I had exposed him to this his current church in Alabama, I was told, well, we believe in the power of God changing people. And because this happened 27 years ago, it has no validity to today. That's what I was told. Um <sighs> see that's where i have issue with it right like like you said they're put in the power just when you walk up and there's your pastor right you're automatically think i'm supposed to trust this man because he's got mm -hmm. my best interest in hand right mm -hmm. and i'm not bashing churches out in my audience please don't take it that way i'm just saying right there's some really good churches out there there's really good men that you know take care of their congregations but when you hear story like stories like Sandy's, you just have to go. But and that sucks because then we don't trust when we go into these places. Well, right? I don't know. It's a matter of lacking. I mean, my story, I hope, isn't so much that we don't trust because there are some wonderful clergy people, men, women out there. And I, I know right. some of them. 
But it, it is it, what I hope my story and other victim stories say is we need to be vigilant and be alert and not just go. assume because he's the pastor or the priest or the rabbi that this would never happen. And that's, I think, the downfall is that people don't want to accept it or believe it. And when it, they're confronted with it, they look for reasons or excuses. Or they want to give the sympathy to the pastor because he's someone that has baptized their children or he's someone that is set by their bedside when their mother was dying. They have a personal relationship with him. And so for them, they don't see him as this person who could be doing something. So, no, the, this is not about pastor bashing. This is not about saying that. Right. But there are many times the church has responded in the wrong way. They've swept it either under the rug or, again, they blame the victim um they look for ways to say look you know everybody deserves a second chance one of the failures i think churches make many times is the misuse of scripture one of the things that you know they they will say is well we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of god is if somehow that's supposed to excuse him god does we're not to judge only god is to judge well my response to that is i'm not judging whether my abuser is going to heaven or hell or whatever his spiritual life is but right. i am judging him on his ability to do his job and he has proven time and time again by his own words he had many incidents throughout his ministry that he's not fit for that job and yet right. his enablers are those in charge of him they're just as guilty for allowing this man to continue in ministry when he was confronted that first time at our when he was just hired at our church about this young girl in his first church my senior minister at the time who i adored and two elders decided that they were going to let him continue in our church as the youth minister without telling anyone about his past and what they in essence were saying was we want to give him a second chance at his job so that we might put someone else at risk. We're willing to do that. We're going to put him back into the ministry and hope it doesn't happen again. And if it does, well, then we'll deal with it. And when it did happen again, they still supported him. I think that not only speaks to the ineptness of churches, but it also speaks to the power these men have over their congregations because they not only groom a victim, they groom the entire congregation. They get their tribe around them to support them. And so when they are caught, it's a feeling of, well, he's such a good man and look at all the good things he's done. And I've never seen any behavior like that. And the sympathy 90% of the time will go to the offending pastor and the right. victim is left in the cold. We're not given support. And even if we're not blamed, there's not the attitude of, Look, what he did was wrong and it should never have happened and he's going to be removed and what can we do to help you that's what needs to happen and it right. doesn't in most cases right and we've heard that over and over again right in the news and stuff we've seen it at least you and i in our lifetimes right where the the church gets sure. caught because they blew they try to sweep it under the rug now they've got so many victims they're caught red-handed by trying to yeah. move a person from church to church to a different state like there has to be, you know, and that's where I applaud you, Sandy, for your courage to just say, look, things have to go different, right? Because like right. an offender, especially like that, right? They used, I, I believe the statistics, I'll research it, but I know most of them re-offend. They don't really oh. get better, right? Whether this is it's, not a one-time thing. Yeah, no. right? Whether no. it's a pedophile or a, a rapist or 
or clergymen, you know, you know, abusing his congregation, right? Because they personality know personality defect. Absolutely. Because they know, and they're like you said, they're grooming, they're not just grooming you. They're grooming the whole congregation. So mm -hmm. when I get caught, they're gonna go, Oh, poor so and so. Mm -hmm. Oh, it can't be him, right? Um, yeah. and, and I'm glad you're here because you know, you know, we just have to make people, like you said, become more aware, pay attention and to what's I going on around you. And like I said, I'm not bashing right. churches or anything because there's really no. good people out there, but just pay attention, right, to your children right. and stuff going on in your church. If you see something because, funny, right? Yeah. And one of the things that we, we talk about with people say, well, how do you approach someone? How do you? So if, if you see some behavior that, that might even be innocent behavior, you're doing that person a favor by saying this can be misunderstood. You know, you really shouldn't be hugging that child that much. Right. And, and if it's a person that isn't is totally innocent is going to be grateful and thankful yes. if it's going to be a predator he's probably going to respond at least as my predator did in an angry way like how dare you accuse me of something like that that's what he said to someone when they there was someone in the church that was suspe suspicious and said something to him and his response was well I, I would never do anything like that and how dare you accuse me of something like that and he, and his his answer back to her was if you feel that way about me you might want to find another church which she did so you know, watch for that response yeah. and if you're going to and even if you think it's a, a true predator you're putting them on alert you know okay i'm watching you you may not agree that i think you shouldn't have been hugging that child but right. now they know someone is watching them so it's exactly. very important to at least acknowledge that there might be a misunderstanding through the behavior and that they need to stop um and i the key i say to people is if you see behavior in a spiritual leader, whether it's a choir director, Sunday school teacher, whoever, right, right. is that behavior that you would accept in a stranger or someone, your neighbor down the street? If it's not behavior you find appropriate in a stranger, it really isn't appropriate behavior for someone just because they're in a church and because they're the pastor. Right. Um, exactly. That's a good, a good bellwether to figure out do is this appropriate behavior or not um and again someone who's innocent with this behavior is going to be grateful that it was called to their attention and i think we are doing a better job i think right. churches now know that you know you shouldn't counsel alone that you should not be in alone with children um many churches have great policies in place but they need to implement those policies when there is an occasion to arise that says there's something here that's not good and right. we need to investigate it we need Absolutely. to look at it i mean even as a yeah. substance abuse counselor right and i sometimes i i have to counsel women um mm -hmm. but if if there's like i always check their history right if there's any chance like i'll call a therapist in another female therapist and go like i for instance i had to um do an assessment on a female who had personality disorder Mm -hmm. luckily i did my homework right i wanted to see what her past treatments were like and right lo and behold right and then it, and it started so as soon as she the first sentence came out i was like uh you know first the door was wide open but i called a the therapist right. and I go, look i don't feel comfortable i don't want anything to be misconstrued right and it was funny because then we did the assessment and that therapist went you did a great job by calling me in here because i could see what right. you were talking about right and good for you for recognizing your limitations um oh, i think so, so many times clergy think because they're clergy people or 
that they have, you know, and God is, you know, guiding them or whatever they're, that they feel like they can handle any situation because God's guiding them or whatever their reasons are. And I, I've told, you know, these, these student pastors, you, you need to know what your limitations are. If you have a young girl come into your office who's self-mutilating, is that something you're capable of dealing with? You know, right. are you, so be aware of those limitations. So good for you and, and recognize that. Cause I don't think many pastors are, are, willing to call someone else in they feel like it's their job to to counsel and take care of that person well the best support you can give whoever you're doing that with right is knowing your limitations right whether it's a male or female like even right. if it's a male and i feel like okay i'm having some counter transference because he reminds me of my son who really mm -hmm. gets under my skin sometimes i'll be like right, right we need to take a time out let's let's go take a walk or you know what i mean but I right. think I think if you're any of us, right, whether we're clergy or just just a good human being, it's knowing those limitations and knowing right. that I can't always do this by myself. I may need to bring someone in and help me with this, yeah. right? Like you did, right. like perfect example, everybody. She brought her husband, she brought a counselor, she brought a friend. Yeah. I mean, what a way yeah. to do that. And Right. To make sure that she got to do, you know, Sandy got to do what she needed to do at that moment and, and do it in a good way. Right. And, and even like when I talk with me, when I talk with victims, you know, I always make it clear, this is just my story and it's what I hope will help you. But each journey of healing has to, to be their own. And, um, right. absolutely. And, and so much depends on healing depends on, you know, your support system. Did, what was your trauma before the sexual abuse? All kinds of things play into how our right. healing processes proceed. Um, but I do think, and I do know there's power in our stories. There's a power in your story, in my story. We all have something to share with each other that will help another individual in their own journey. And, um, and that's, that's why I share my story because I, I will tell you, um, Max, it's so many times I had thought over the years, what would have changed in my life had I heard someone else's story when my own abuse was occurring? You know, would right. it have given me the courage to tell someone? I certainly would have known that I wasn't alone, which is what I felt. I did. I mean, I just believed I'd gotten the only rotten bear, apple in the barrel, that no one else was going through this. And right. so for me, I'm confident in telling people that, you know, my sharing in my story, while it's helpful to me at times and it's cathartic, I do it because I know that it could have an impact on another victim or someone who's out there who's never told anyone that they've been sexually abused. Right. And I want them to know that healing and hope is possible and that you don't have to be defined by who your abuser said you were because our abuser put us in a box and they, you know, they tell us things like we're not pretty enough. We're not smart enough. We're not worthy enough. And we begin to accept that and believe those things. And it takes years sometimes to unravel those lies and right. become the person we were meant to be and not the person created by our abuser. Absolutely. Right. And that takes such, such courage. Like, you know, everybody got to read her book. It's, it's i'm only getting started and i can't put it down right and it's but i love books like that right because i do like you just said believe people have stories and people like yourself sandy who have the courage to share that with the world you're absolutely correct you're going to help somebody they're going to be listening right now and they're going to go she just saved my life 
I know what mm -hmm. I need to do now, right? And mm -hmm. as you know, because there's things people either carry it to the grave, which takes them there quicker sometimes, because we know like those secrets are just so horrible. Um, right. Right. And then like being a fellow author, I know when I wrote my book, you know, coming from addiction into recovery, it was so cathartic and right. That's why I share my story. Right. Mm -hmm. And I tell, and you know, this there's power in numbers, right. And the more people we can help, which is then creates a ripple effect. Right. And other people are going to help and yes. they're going to go, where did this start? Oh, you know, well, we heard Max and Sandy on the podcast and they were sharing her story about her abuse and how she tries to help because you're now an advocate for people who have been abused by clergy, correct? So yes, I am. Um, uh, I'm going to ask you, well, I'm going to start um, with my questions first, right? I wrote okay. a book named, I, that's what I named my podcast after. Let's start okay. with fearless, right? Because right, I already know you're fearless because you came and shared your story on my podcast. <laughs> but what does fearless mean to you, Sandy? And what is, how does that show up in your life today? Uh, for me, it was facing the unknown and disregarding the consequences. Um, it was saying to my, that 16 year old girl, you deserve to have the life that you were meant to have. And that meant telling a secret that I thought I needed to protect. And that was being fearless because I didn't know, you know, I didn't know where this was going to lead. Because like I said, for 27 years, I was so convinced that I needed to keep it a secret that the thought of revealing it was terrifying to me. So, you know, it, it's facing the unknown and trusting that the outcome will be better than what you're living. Absolutely. I love that. Next question. I love to ask my guests, right? Happiness, right? Because it seems as you have found your happiness now and have for a while, but I put a Y in there. So knowing I put a Y in happiness, right? Because I get like, hey, you spelled uh -huh. that wrong, Max. I go, yes, I did. <laughs> I did it for a reason. On purpose. <laughs> yes, absolutely. What does happiness mean to you? And how does that show up in your life today? Happiness shows in my life because I'm now authentic. You know, for 27 years, I felt like an imposter. I felt like if people knew who I really was and what I'd really done, they wouldn't care for me like they do. They wouldn't like me. They would judge me. They would criticize me. And so my happiness really began the moment I told my truth and told my story and let go of the guilt and the shame. Happiness. I mean, I had a wonderful marriage. I had two great kids. We had, a, I mean, on the outside, I looked like my life was perfect. But there was a piece of that joy that was missing because of the secret. And so right. once I let go of that, my happiness became complete. I, I, I am still astounded at how free I feel compared to what I felt for 27 years. Letting go of that has just changed my life. You know, when I first write, started writing the book, I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to be revealing a lot of intimate details here that are very ugly. Um, I, I didn't hold anything back in, in far as what was done to me. And so to me, I remember thinking, I can write the truth. I can write whatever I want because it's the truth and I'm not at, at I'm not at fault here. This is not right. what was done to me was not my fault. And so that just made the circle of happiness complete for me, being able to tell my truth. And I love time with my grandchildren. I, I just love life because I can be who I am. Absolutely. See, do you hear that audience? Just be you and be the best you possible, right? I mean, I, I so 
when you shared that, right, you gave me goosebumps because it just, it, it reminds me like we all have this story, right? And like you said, when I released those secrets, right? Like in my work with my sponsor doing that four step, I always tell my guys that I sponsor or the clients I work with, I go, here's what you're, cause they're all, oh, I got to do the four step. I got to tell everybody my secret. I go, no, you don't have to tell everybody. It's that one person, right? I mm-hmm. always say it's my, my sponsor and God. And then I leave it at that. Mm-hmm. But the I think about telling, telling your story. And I don't know if this was true with you, but because, you know, I was so afraid of, of sharing what I had think I had done. I told my story in bits and pieces at first. I let a little bit out and then I I watched the reaction of my friends. And then I would say, okay, well, there's something else that I need to tell you about what happened to me. And so it it was kind of a drip, drip, drip process for me because I I had that that, that insecurity of, of how people would respond. And so when I found out, okay, they still weren't blaming me once I told them this, or they didn't say, really, you agree to do that with him? I had none of that. And so I, it was easier each time I told parts of my story till I was finally able to the point where I truly understood and believed that my story was, was something that was done to me and nothing that I had caused or that I could have changed. And I had nothing to be ashamed of. And I could do that by telling my truth. Gotcha. All right. Okay. Okay. We're going again. So, um, it's funny you said it. So what I was getting at, like that's I know when you release that stuff, like for me, I I likened it to I had a silverback gorilla, right? On my back, putting me in a chokehold for all those years. Right. Cause here's what happened. Like when I did it in bits and pieces and didn't get really honest with my sponsor, I relapsed four times. Cause I realized, mm-hmm. right, the first time I did a four-step, it was like three quarters of a page. And he even yeah. gave me that look, like, really? You just got out of jail, you've been running the streets, and like yeah. you're telling me that's it. But he yeah. didn't say anything, right? So I'm like, okay. And then when I finally got honest and really did it the best I could and told him everything that I could remember, and and if, if it was like that, that gorilla left my back, patted yeah. me on the butt and said, you're going to be okay, and took off. Yeah. And I was like, right? And that's similar to what you went through, right? With with confronting that gentleman and telling your, you know, your your friends and your husband and it's just an amazing journey when people realize like we don't have to be ashamed of the things that we've gone through right and what have happened to us and stuff like that so um thank you for sharing that um before we end though i always like to ask right like if someone wants where can they get your book on amazon correct correct it's also also on my website um but the, and the website has a lot of good information for anyone who's just interested to want to kind of explore a little bit. Um, it's simply my name, which is Sandy, S-A-N-D-Y, Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, Kirkham, K-I-R-K-H-A-M.com. And that website, they can also get the book there, but I, I think it's a great place for someone to go to just kind of tip their toe into it a little bit to see what's my website has to say and we maybe give them some information that they might need and then i also have an author facebook page um, which is just my name again but the um i would encourage everyone if they can to borrow the book read the book whatever because i do think um it's a book that can not only help victims but hopefully someone else who isn't quite sure how this clergy sexual abuse works and has those questions of why didn't they say no I, it's also a, a book of, of uh, i think educational material as well and i tell people it's not just a book about abuse it is a book about healing and hope and so i hope people will find the book to be helpful for them 
That's awesome. So if they wanted to work with you or, or reach out to you and get to know you better, they could reach you at your website or your yes, author Facebook yes, page. Yes. Um, my website will have my email on there that they can contact me if they wish to. And I'm happy to, you know, to listen to anyone or, you know, I'm not a paid professional counselor, but I do think sharing our stories and, and giving our insights are, are powerful. Awesome. I appreciate you being here, Sandy, so much. Thank you so much. But you're not quite off the hook just yet. I always okay. love to ask one last question of my my guests. So, right, I'm sure a lot of people were really affected by you sharing your story, right? But I want you to tell them one piece of advice. What what could you what piece of advice, excuse me? I'm like still like wrapping my head around this, right? Like I just get so passionate about like people should be good to each other right not mm -hmm. I so know. knowing that right right what piece of advice would you give my audience to help them grow as a human being and become a better human being what's that one piece of advice be true to yourself i, I would say don't carry any guilt and shame that doesn't belong to you look at your life and say what was done to me was not my fault and any guilt and shame lies squarely on my abuser lies squarely on the abuser don't carry that guilt and shame and the other piece would be to educate yourself you know once you learn those terms of grooming and gaslighting the, the light bulb is going to go on as to what was really done for you and there is hope and there is healing i promise there's hope and healing awesome you heard that everybody educate yourself don't be afraid and don't carry i love that don't carry guilt and shame that's not yours to carry I it's love not that. yours to carry. It's I love his it. burden. That's yeah. right. Thank you so much for being Thank here. Thank you. Everybody, you heard Sandy. She killed it. I love it. Um, so if Sandy made you think, she made you laugh, she made you cry, whatever, she made you go, hmm, like I like to say, please leave a five-star review over on iTunes so people can find it and we can reach more people. But until next time, everybody. Let's thank Sandy for being here. Thank you, Sandy. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. You've been listening to Fearless Happiness. The numbers on addiction are absolutely stunning. Max lived in addiction for years and during that time made some terrible choices, losing his family, friends, and career. But he turned his life around. And now Max works as a substance abuse counselor helping people in their recovery. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you had fun along the way. We know we did. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit the website at maxnaist.com. On Facebook at max.naist. Till next time, keep the fight. And we'll see you soon.